Let me pray, and uh, we'll get started. Father in heaven, we, uh, we love you, and we recognize this morning with great humility that we love you because you first loved us, because you have sought us, because you seek us still, you pursue us. And though at times we find ourselves faithless, though we are wayward, you draw us back. And so, Father, we thank you for the new mercies that are in Christ Jesus for us this morning. We thank you that as we wake up and open your word, that you are with us, that this is not just an intellectual exercise for us, um, but, Father, that you are present with us now, and that through your word, you have the power to change us according to the gospel. So, Father, we pray for nothing less than that power this morning, that you would redeem us, that you would renew us, and that we would be further conformed to the image of the Son, that we would be no less than that much more changed as we leave than when we came in. We ask this in his name. Amen. If you would, uh, you can grab your sheet or turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. If you're just now joining us, uh, which is great, you can join anytime, uh, welcome. We are going through a series called Encounters with Jesus. And quite simply, all that means is that we are spending this semester, between now and summer, studying different encounters that Jesus has with different people throughout his life and ministry. Uh, it's important for us because we've spent a lot of time studying letters, uh, even large narratives like the book of Daniel, all of which are helpful for our souls. Uh, but sometimes we think about Jesus, we think a lot about um, parables, and we, we might even look at one or two as we go through this series. Uh, we think about especially miracles, we especially think about his death and resurrection. But we, we forget at times that Jesus was a real man who interacted with real people. And it helps kind of bring us back to the simplicity of the gospel. And so last week, what we looked at was a, a story about a man named Nicodemus. And the simplicity of the gospel, Nicodemus coming to Jesus, wanting to know, what do I have to believe in order to be a Christian? What's essential? Right? What do I have to know? One teacher coming to another teacher trying to ask this, what do I have to know in order to be a Christian? Today, it's a different question entirely, but one that's just as important. What do I have to do in order to be a Christian? What do I have to do? And so this morning we're looking at the story of the rich young ruler, a story that shows up in three different gospels in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This morning we'll focus on Luke, uh, his depiction, his retelling of the story of the rich young ruler. I want to begin this way. Uh, last Sunday, I, I taught the, um, the youth, the, the high school group, which is a lot of fun. And I, I mentioned this story, and some of you may have heard me tell this story uh, before, but it's one of my favorite stories. It was a long time ago now, but just after my 18th birthday, I, um, with three of my buddies from high school, we traveled overseas to the country of Morocco. I wonder, has anybody ever been to Morocco? It's an amazing country. It's in North Africa, and it is a closed country, 
And what do we mean by a closed country? Well, it is closed legally to Christianity. All right, so it's a predominantly a Muslim country, a country where Christianity is illegal to be practiced and especially illegal to be proclaimed and preached. And so we and three of my buddies somehow convinced our parents it was a great idea for us to fly over there by ourselves. And we met up with a missionary there in the country. Uh, he met us in Gibraltar. And we kind of set up shop in a city called Theuda. Now, Theuda is in Morocco, but it is owned by the country of Spain. Now, what that means is it follows Spanish law. So if you're still, if you're still tracking with me, I know it's early. And these are complicated international legal things. But what that means is you don't have to, you, you are free to practice Christianity, preach Christianity in Theuda under Spanish rule. But at the moment that you cross the border, it is now illegal. So this is what we did. We set up shop. That was our home base. And we would load up a red Volkswagen Eurobus. You ever seen one of those? They're awesome. Uh, think uh, dirtiest van you could possibly think of. Um, just creepy, weird. Uh, European van. It was red and it had secret compartments all over it. And we would stuff these secret compartments full of Bibles and we would drive across the border into the country of Morocco under Moroccan rule and we would smuggle Bibles into a place where Bibles were illegal. It was a ton of fun. Even looking back on it now, uh, so much fun. Uh, I mean, going through checkpoints and not knowing what was going to happen. Um, it was amazing. And for me, I was, I was a new Christian, just about a year old in my faith. And so for me, it was so formative. And I'll never forget, um, you know, giving a Bible to a town magistrate and one of, you know, basically a town sheriff in one of these towns and being literally chased down a mountain by him and five of his, you know, cronies um, you know, for fear that we were going to be arrested. But the story that stands out the most to me is this. And it was actually in Theuda. Uh, we, we spent some time walking the streets in Theuda, uh, knowing that we could share the gospel openly with people. What an opportunity under Spanish law without fear of being arrested. And so we would go around uh, sharing the gospel with Muslims, uh, trying to help them to understand what Christ had done for us. And if you've ever done evangelism in a foreign country, you know how awkward that can be. Not because evangelism is awkward, because you don't speak the language. <laughs> and whatever training you've done, you're, you're in broken whatever language it is, trying to get by. Well, I, at this point, I had uh, about three or four years of Spanish uh, classes in me. And so I was speaking broken Spanish, and I met a man named Ahmed. And Ahmed was a Muslim who also knew Spanish just about as much as I did, <laughs> which wasn't a lot. So between the two of us, we began to talk. Ahmed was from Palestine. You know where that is? If you know anything about that country, you know that they've been at war with Israel for a long, long time. And he uh, eventually became a refugee. He, he told me that he would wake up with uh, bullets flying past his head. He watched family members um, die, right? murdered, killed. Um, he couldn't take any more, and for fear, he fled his home country, and he was trying to now make a living in Morocco. And I forget, in broken Spanish, as we talked about all of this, 
what he, what he asked me. He asked me if I believed in God. And I said, yes, I do. And I asked him if he believed in God. And he said, yes, he does. He believes in Allah. And this is what he asked me. He said, why do you think I'm a good Muslim? I'm a good Muslim. Why do you think Allah would let this happen to me? Why, for being a good Muslim, would he allow all of this pain, all of this hardship, happen in my life? And there I got, in very broken Spanish, I got to share the gospel about who Christ is and what he has done. And Ahmed, as best as I can tell in that moment, prayed the sinner's prayer and became a believer. And I learned a couple things in that moment. I learned, one, I don't have the power to convince anybody of the gospel. I know that because I spoke in terrible Spanish to a man who also had terrible Spanish and yet saw him come to saving faith. That was nothing I did. But I also begin to recognize a very strong power in all of us, not just Ahmed, but you and I as well that we have this understanding of goodness. And when our understanding of goodness is coupled with an understanding of God, we automatically think that those two things should go together. Because we are good, then God should have favor on us. And here's the problem. There's over 4,000 religions in the world today. 4,000. And essentially, they're all the same. They all have the same message at some level. This is what you have to do in order to get to God. Here's what you have to do. Same message. So for Ahmed and Islam, here are all the teachings of the Quran, all the rules, the things that you have to practice in order to get to God. That's why he was asking, he was wondering, look, I've done everything I'm supposed to. Why could this happen to me? You think of any other world religion, they're essentially the same. Here's what you have to do. Christianity is the only one about what God has done for us. It's the only one story, not about what do we do to get to God, but here's what God has done in order to come down to us, the person and work of Jesus Christ. And here's the problem. Even though you and I have grown up in a predominantly Christian country, and many of us have grown up with faith, even though you and I are now in a church right now studying the Bible, There are times that we can be just like Ahmed. There are times when our view of Christianity can resemble every other religion in the world, that we think somehow it's about what we can do. That somehow it's about our goodness. And this is the story of the rich young ruler. It's essentially the question that this young man wants to know. What do I have to do to get eternal life? So this morning, we're going to answer that question in three ways. The first thing I want to look at is that there is a problem with goodness. We have a problem with goodness. Okay, what do I mean by that? Mark 10, verse 17, we're told that Jesus was going out on a journey, and a man, that is the rich young ruler, he ran up. Notice it says he knelt before him, and he asked him, Good teacher, what must I do? to inherit eternal life. Now, as we study all of these encounters, it's important for us not to just skip to what Jesus says, but to really pay attention to what these people are saying as they interact with Jesus. So notice how this man, this rich young ruler, is addressing Jesus. First, we see that he kneels before him, 
right, out of respect. He recognizes, just as Nicodemus did, that there is something different about Jesus. He's not just a normal rabbi, but there's something unique about him, something special, but he doesn't quite know what it is. That's important. In many ways, you could say, yes, he is not a believer in Jesus, but he's definitely a seeker. He wants to know what is he about, just like Nicodemus. The other thing I want to point out, two things, is the first is this. He says, good teacher. So last week, if you were with us, Nicodemus addressed Jesus as rabbi, as teacher. Again, same thing. He calls him teacher. In other words, he's not Lord to him. He's not king of kings. He's not the son of God. Right? None of those things are entering into his mind as he looks at Jesus. To this man, he is a teacher, but he's a well-respected teacher. But not only is he just a teacher, he calls him good. He calls him good. Now, in order for him to call Jesus good, that's a statement of judgment. In other words, in this young man's life, he feels like he has a grasp, an understanding of what goodness is. And based on his understanding of goodness, the system that he has given himself to, he's looking at Jesus and saying, Oh, just like me, you're good. I need to come to you and learn from you. If you're with us last week, think about Nicodemus. Coming to Jesus, one rabbi to another, the story of the rich young ruler in his mind, one devout, God-fearing man who's moral, coming to another moral, God-fearing, devout man. Good teacher. And then here's his question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, what you might not realize about the rich young ruler, about this young man, is that for him to even ask that question is unusual. You see, most Jews in those days wouldn't have even asked, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? For most of them, they just assumed because... I'm a child of Abraham, I'm in. Look, because I've, I'm, I'm a Jewish person who's grown up in the lineage of Abraham, I have eternal life. And you think, well, that seems so crazy, so backwards. But think about how often you even hear this in America today. You know, well, what, what religion are you? Well, I'm a Christian. Well, tell me about that. Why are you a Christian? Well, it's what I grew up with. Right? It's what I grew up with. Oh, okay. Well, what did that look like? Well, we just went to church every Sunday. Well, what do you believe? Well, we, I mean, look, I've grown up with it. So I'm a Christian, right? I'm going to heaven. This is what I've grown up with, right? It's the same exact thing. Yet for this man, he knows it, it can't be just that. It can't be just that. He knows, I've got to do something. Right? I can't just rely on my heritage. He asked Jesus, what do I have to do? What do I have to do? This is Jesus' response, verse 18. Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So Jesus' response, first and foremost, is to call into question this system that the rich young ruler has given himself to. He recognizes the only way that you're going to call me good is if you think you're good. The only way that you're going to call me good is if you have some idea of what goodness is. So he calls it in a question. Hey, why, why are you calling me good? What is it about me that you think is good? And then he says this, no one, no one is good except God alone. Let me ask you something this morning. 
Whether you've grown up in church or you haven't. Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that? I know we're supposed to believe that, that no one is good except God alone. But do you really believe that? Or is there some part of you deep down that still thinks that, yeah, I mean, people can be basically good, right? I mean, isn't that we can kind of figure this out, at least at some level? We can't get it all right, but isn't there some part of us that can be good? But notice what Jesus says. No one, not any person on the planet for all history is good. No one except God alone. No one. No one. So what do you do with that? We have a problem with goodness. Not only that we think that we understand even what it is in the first place, but that we somehow can meet those standards. There's a word for that. It's called moralism. It's called moralism. Okay, what's moralism? Moralism says goodness is defined based on a human standard. Goodness is defined based on me comparing myself to everyone else around me. That's what moralism is. And I would submit to you that that's exactly what this rich young ruler thought. When he defined goodness in himself, it was that he thought he was better than other people. When he defined goodness in Jesus, he respected Jesus because he recognized Jesus is better than other people. So for you this morning, as you think about looking at yourself, looking at your life, wondering or not if you're good or not, or if you're doing it right, if your standard for goodness is just comparing yourself to the next guy, then you are a moralist. But God is not interested in moralism. He's not interested in our morality for morality's sake. What God needs from us, what he's created us to be, yet we have failed miserably, is he wants our holiness. Holiness is something completely different than moralism. If moralism is goodness compared to other people, holiness is goodness set to the standard of God himself. In other words, in compared to God, are you good? (laughs) To his holiness, his perfection, that's the standard. If you want to define what goodness is, if you want a new system of defining goodness, it's not about comparing yourself to everyone else. It's how do you compare? How do you stack up before God? Because God has called us to be holy as he is holy. And there's the problem. That's why Jesus says no one is good except God alone. Then he says this, verse 19. He says, You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Now, I don't know how many of you guys have grown up around church, but how many commandments are there? Ten. Okay, good. So you know there's ten. How many does he list? Can you count real quick? It's not (laughs) ten. He's leaving some out. Okay, why? Does Jesus not know the Ten Commandments? No, remember, he's a good teacher. So no, he knows the Ten Commandments. So why, why just focus on these? What is unique about these among the Ten Commandments? Well, every one of them is external. 
They're all the kind of commandments that you could look at yourself or somebody could look at you and know you're doing a good job. He's asking him on purpose, right? Here's the rich young ruler. He looks at these and notices his response. He says, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. In other words, ever since my bar mitzvah, growing up as a young Jewish boy, I was raised to keep these commandments. And I have done everything in my power to keep them. So I'm good, right? Isn't that what it takes to have eternal life? Just tell me, Jesus. Will you please affirm me? Tell me I'm good like I think I am. Yet here's the problem. Jesus is not just after our external ability to try to keep a bunch of commandments. But he's after the heart. And that's why Jesus says, no one is good except God alone. Paul says it this way. As it is written, right, he's quoting the Old Testament here. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one even does good. No, not one. That's Romans chapter 3, verses 10, 11, and 12. No one is good. Not one of us. We have a problem with goodness. Not only that compared to God, that we are not good in our lack of holiness, but that we've fooled ourselves by creating our own system and defining our own uh, standard of goodness. And that's what we hold ourselves to. Yet Jesus wants something more. So the second thing, the second thing I want to look at is the pool of idolatry. The pool. The lure, the pull of idolatry. We don't just have a problem with goodness. There is a pull on every single one of our hearts that we would worship other gods other than the God who made us. Right? The first commandment, the one that Jesus does not mention by name, he's about to go straight to the heart of this rich young ruler. Verse 21, Jesus says, Jesus looked at him and he loved him. And he said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Once you look at verse 21, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record the story of the rich young ruler. Mark is the only one that says this, that when Jesus came to this young man, he looked at him, and he loved him. He loved him. In other words, Jesus is not just picking on this guy or trying to make an example of him. No, he loves him. Jesus loves the rich young ruler, and because he loves him, he goes straight to his heart. He says, look, I understand that in your mind you've kept every one of these external commandments, that outwardly you've worked very hard to live a moral life. But what's going on on the inside? Internally, who are you before God? And as he looks deep into his heart, this is what he sees. That his heart, just like all of ours, is an idol factory. And it is fixated for this young man, money. Money. And Jesus sees it. He sees it. And because he sees this man has allowed money to take root in his heart, to be the thing that he loves, but not just loves with an affection, 
like all of our idols, for it to be a god to him is not just that he pays homage to it, it's that he trusts it. It gives him comfort. He finds his source of strength, of success. Even in some ways, his sense of being better than other people. Not just his morality, but his wealth. He probably even thinks that God somehow has favor on him, right? I've done everything right, and look, God has blessed me. I'm wealthy. I've trusted in it. I rest in it. And this is what Jesus says. Sell everything you have. Sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. We're told that the rich young ruler became sad. He was disheartened. Why? Because he had a lot of possessions. And he went away from Jesus. Sorrowful. Sorrowful. Why? Because he couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. Deep down, he could not give up this idol that had so firmly implanted itself in the deepest parts of his heart. And so Jesus then looks around as this young man goes away. His disciples are there. And this is what he says. How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It's a hard saying. How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. You know, just like our morality, wealth is a funny thing. Because right now, you're probably thinking, well, does Jesus mean that? I hope not. Or you're thinking, well, I'm not as wealthy as that guy over there in the corner. Man, it's going to be pretty tough for him. I'm glad it's not been so good for me this quarter, right? We, we can so easily turn this into comparison game too. But I think all of us should recognize the fact that we are wearing clothes. We all drove here in a car from a place that has a warmth and a heater. I think we all probably could categorize ourselves in the terms of the world as being pretty wealthy, regardless of where you fall on the spectrum. You see, the problem is that we, um, look, and we'll, we'll talk about this at our tables. And is money inherently sinful? Is money inherently sinful? I want you to wrestle with that. I want you to wrestle with that. Because on one level, we can say, well, well no, it's, it's just a thing. And I think it's true. It's just a thing. Like many things that exist in the world. And it's not inherently um, sinful in and of itself, but there is a deep power and a deep sway that money has on the human heart. It is powerful. Why? Why does it lure us? Because it makes us independent. It makes us self-sufficient. It gives us the illusion that we can have success and power and notoriety in and of ourselves. It puts us in the driver's seat and it gives us the power. That's why money can become the God of gods to us. And by the way, money can be your God if you have a ton of it and money can be your God if you have none of it. I've been in some very poor places 
where people thought if they just had enough money, they could get out of their situation. And again, I've said this before, it's hard for us, especially as Western people who have never experienced poverty to understand the complexities of the impoverished. But we have to recognize as money is a lure, it's a snare, it's a trap, and it's deeply cultural to us as it was to the rich young ruler. It always has been. Our culture has always looked up upon the wealthy. And so for those of us who are, and that's again all of us, who feel that there's a certain sense of comfort that we enjoy because of what we're able to provide for ourselves, we have to really look deeply at our hearts and ask this question, what are you trusting in? What do you rest in? Right? What, where do you find your sense of comfort, your sense of stability, your sense of control? Jesus says this, verse 24, he says, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Notice he's saying that in general. Remember, no one is good except God alone. <laughs> how difficult it is for those to enter the kingdom of God. But then again, he brings up money. He says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And many people have tried to explain this verse away, uh, even saying so far as, you know, in the ancient Near East at the temple, you have these giant doors for, you know, um, armies to march through. And then they have a little door in, at the bottom for you to go through. And there are those who say, well, that's the eye. Of, that's what's called the eye of the needle. So saying, well, look, you know, a door meant for a man, a camel can't go underneath. I want to tell you in the Greek what eye of the needle means. You ready? It means eye of the needle. <laughs> it's amazing. It's like a little needle with a little eye. What's Jesus' point? Is it hard? Kind of difficult? No, no, it's... Can a camel go through the eye of a little needle? No. It's impossible. It's absolutely impossible. So he's saying, look, it is impossible. It's impossible for somebody who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. So what do we do with that? <laughs> what do we do with that? Why could that be? Again, is it because we have money? Is, what, what was the rich young ruler's problem? Is it because that he was wealthy? Was that his issue? Remember, Jesus says what? You lack one thing. One thing you lack. What did he lack? What was it? What was he missing? It's a table I want you, it's a, something I want you to wrestle with at your tables. I think Jesus gives us a clue. Jesus loved him. He loved him. So what did the rich young ruler lack? Love. Love. We love because he first loved us. He failed to understand that God loved him. And so in response, he does not love God. It's not what drives him. It's not what motivates his goodness or his sense of morality. He lacks love. So much so that he recognizes sorrowfully that he loves money more than God, and so he goes away. He goes away. He can't do it. He lacks love. This is James K.A. Smith, a great little book called You Are What You Love. He says, Jesus is a teacher who doesn't just inform our intellect, but forms our loves. He isn't content to simply just deposit new ideas in your mind. He is after nothing less than your wants, your loves, your longings. 
Here he is coming to this teacher, Jesus, wanting him to tell, teach him, teach his mind, what do I have to do? And Jesus says, I don't want you to do anything. I want your very heart. I want your affection. I want your love. That's what you have to ultimately do, that you'd be willing to give up everything in order to love me with all your heart, with all your mind, your soul, and your strength. Yes, you have the ability to keep these commandments outwardly, but you have broken the first and most important commandment, that you shall have no other gods before me. So what do we do? What do we do with this? The last thing, and I'll send you to your tables. I want to look at the power of the gospel. At this point, you should recognize how difficult this teaching really is. For the rich young ruler, to the point where he couldn't do it, and how difficult it is for us as well. That if we're really going to take Jesus seriously for what he says, this should be hard for us to wrestle with this this morning. It was hard for the disciples as well. The disciples, verse 26, are exceedingly astonished. I want you to think about the things that they have seen at this point and what they have heard. Right? They have seen Jesus work miracles. They have heard him teach parable after parable. And yet in this moment, they are exceedingly astonished. And notice what they ask. Then who can be saved? Were the disciples as wealthy as the rich young ruler? No. Maybe one of them was. But for the most part, these were blue-collar guys, right? Fishermen. And yet they're looking at this rich young ruler who in their minds is good, and their minds and their culture seems to have it all together and here Jesus is saying, nope, he can't, he can't enter. And they're thinking, who can be saved? If that guy can't get saved, then how, how am I? How, how's anybody? They're exceedingly astonished. And, and brothers, I want us to be exceedingly astonished this morning as well. That this should shake us. It should shake us to our core. And so Jesus looks at them. And this is what he says, and I want you to hear this for yourself as well. With man, it is impossible. It's impossible. Your salvation with man is impossible. Why? Because no one is good except God alone. And because there are idols that have taken residence uh, of your heart. Maybe it's not money for you. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's control, prestige, power. Could be about 50 other different things. Culturally today, a lot of times it's sex. What is that one thing that you don't want to give up? That one thing that you don't want to submit to God? Whatever that thing is, you love it. Right? You worship it. It's become a God to you. And so Jesus says, look, because of these things, with man it's impossible, but notice what he says, but not with God. All things are possible with God. This is the power of the gospel, brothers. No one is good except God alone, but God in his goodness sent his son Jesus Christ to obey every commandment on your behalf, to do so with a whole heart, a pure heart, that out of love, he came down and he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
and he bore your sin, your shame, your lack of goodness on the cross. And then he rose again. Three days later, he rose again, and by that power, he has the power to go deep into your hearts and pull out every idol that has taken up residence there. He has the power to do spiritual surgery on your soul. It's not enough that we would just try to take up idols out of ourselves, but we recognize that in that idol's place, we need a new affection for Jesus Christ, a new sense of love, born out of His love for us. And we need to recognize that this happens because God loves you. Because Jesus loves you in the same way that He loved the rich young ruler. He loves you. And because He loves you, He wants to go to your heart. He wants you to give up your idols. To stop trying to clean yourself up and to be just good enough. But to recognize that He has called you to be holy. And in that, He has sent the Holy One to die and to rise again for you. Nothing is impossible with God. This story comes right after another story, Mark 9. And in this story, in Mark 9, there's a little boy who's possessed by a demon. And this demon is so strong, deep in his soul, in his heart, that as the disciples try to get the demon out, they can't do it. Right? The demon is too deeply planted. And so they give up. They ask Jesus for help. And Jesus says, faithless generation. And he looks at this little boy and he says, nothing is impossible with God. And he frees this little boy from this demon and says, this kind can only come out with prayer. Brothers, what I want you to see is that in our culture, these idols are down deep. And it's not enough for us just to try to uproot them ourselves, like the disciples to try in our own power to get them out. But we must humble ourselves before God himself and recognize that nothing is impossible with him. And to pray, Father, would you please help me to see what you've done for me. Free me from my idols. And help me to see that you love me first. And may I respond with love, with trust, with belief. That I would know that your death and your resurrection through your son is the only thing I rest in. Let me pray for you and I'll send you to your tables this morning. Father, again, we, we, we come across a very simple story with a simple message that many of us in this room have heard before. And yet we recognize that as we hear it again, that yet we still find ourselves just like the rich young ruler. We find ourselves caught up in a lie that we can be good enough. We find ourselves deeply entrenched with these idols that lure us, that snare us, that pull at our hearts. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to do the difficult this work this morning by naming our idols, by uprooting them, but more than that, that recognizing in, that, in their place that we would see that you love us. Because you love us, you sent your son Jesus to die and to rise again, that he might take up a new residence in our hearts and souls, and that we would follow him all the days of our life. Help us to do this, we pray. Help us to do this by the power of the gospel, 
May you make us new this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll see you next week. Y'all go to your tables.